Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to, no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything, from t-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets, and of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days. Like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection, or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code staple two zero. Humans don't need to eat animals to get enough protein. Relying on animals to meet human protein needs is not only unnecessary, but it's associated with an increased risk of death and disease. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio. And this is episode number 256. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, veggie lovers, what a fantastic, plantastic episode I have for you today with the legend Brenda Davis. She is here today to talk about her book, Plant Powered Protein, that she co-authored with her son and Vasanto Molina. Before I tell you about Brenda, I just want you to remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. So if you have concerns about you or your child or another family members eating nutrition or growth, please consult a health professional. Brenda has been on the podcast before to talk about the book Nourish, which is, was written for children. So look that episode up. She did that with Dr. Reshma Shah. Now she is on to talk about her newest book, Plant Powered Protein, which I highly recommend for those of you who need a little bit more reassurance and information about getting sufficient protein from plants. 
So who is Brenda Davis? If you don't already know, she is a registered dietitian, is a world-leading plant-based pioneer and an internationally acclaimed speaker. She has been featured speaker at medical nutrition and dietetic conferences in 25 countries on six continents. That's amazing. As a prolific nutrition writer, Brenda has authored or co-authored 13 books with nearly a million copies in print in 15 languages. Her latest book, Plant-Powered Protein, hot off the press, April 2023. Brenda has also authored and co-authored numerous professional and lay articles and is past chair of the Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group of the American Dietetic Association. She was the lead dietitian in a diabetes intervention research project in the Marshall Islands. And on her last trip in November 2017, she developed a nutrition education curriculum for kindergarten through grade six and trained teachers in all public schools. Brenda was the seventh recipient of the Plantrition Project's Luminary Award. And she is amazing, kind and warm, knowledgeable, so full of information. This podcast is really great as an introduction to protein and protein derived from plants. So if you keep getting that same question, or if you have those questions about where do you get your protein? Am I getting enough protein? Do I need more protein? Do my kids need more protein? This is the episode to listen to. So what do we talk about? We talk about her journey as a plant-based vegan dietitian, why why a book about protein now? Why is there so much controversy around protein, even among experts? Is plant protein inferior or incomplete versus animal protein? Are there advantages to consuming plant protein over animal protein? Uh, Spoiler alert, yes. How much protein does the typical American adult need? And how do they determine what's sufficient for them specifically? We talk about athletes. Do they need more? We talk about seniors. Do they need more? We also talk about children. And if people need to track their protein intake or how can they determine if what they're consuming is sufficient? So like I said, this is a good introductory episode about protein, especially if you are a plant-based person who wants to make sure that you're getting enough. This is the episode for you. Veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for coming week after week. I appreciate you. I'm so grateful for you. I'm just so happy to be here creating these episodes for you, getting the opportunity to interview these amazing experts, people that are dedicated and compassionate and loving and really care about helping other people. So thank you for making this possible for me. And thank you for being you. Without further ado, let's welcome Brenda Davis, RD. Brenda Davis, plant-based vegan icon. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Oh, it's wonderful to be back with you. I'm excited. (laughs) Yes, and I'm excited to talk about this topic because, as you know, probably the reason you wrote this book, it's a very hotly debated, discussed topic. But before we get to that, I would love for you to tell my listeners a little bit about your journey as a vegan dietitian and why you wrote this book focusing on protein now. Well, absolutely. I I actually got interested in nutrition and plant-based diets when I was in high school, and I became a registered dietitian in 1983. And and I I I had plant-based leanings at that time, but I wasn't completely plant-based until 1989. Uh, at that time, I was a public health nutritionist, and I'd actually only met one real-life vegetarian in my whole life. I I was I was really intrigued 
intrigued, though, with books like More With Less and Diet for a Small Planet and Laurel's Kitchen. I even remember reading Diet for a New America. And, and I just desperately wanted to understand the consequences of our food choices, both for human health, but beyond human health. And I was just so impressed by the strength of the link between diet and disease and by the profound impact that food has on animals and on the environment. And the more I dug into uh, what was going on in our world, looking at that sort of bigger picture, uh, the more I was compelled to take a stand. And I just became committed to promoting eating patterns that both support and protect human health while minimizing pain, suffering, and death in other creatures, and helping to protect the Earth's very fragile ecosystems. Um, and, and to be really honest, I was scared because uh, in those days, vegetarian diets were considered risky, vegan diets were considered downright dangerous, and I, I thought I was going to just be ousted from my profession. So, you know, I, I was bound and determined that I would do everything I could to make sure everything I said was evidence-based and that I was very, very professional in my communications, respectful of my colleagues. And so it, it didn't turn out quite as badly as I thought it might. Um, in fact, my colleagues embraced the information that I was providing to help them with their, their vegetarian and vegan uh, clients. So it ended up all being good. But in terms of the plant, um, powered protein book. This is actually my 13th book. And this one has a really special place in my heart because my son, Corey, was a co-author. He actually did the environmental section and, and uh, that was just so much fun to write something with him. And my, my traditional writing partner, Vasanto Molina, and I decided to write about plant protein because, as you said, protein is something that people are obsessed with. And in our culture, people often view animal products as the only real protein sources. And everyone who goes plant-based get, gets asked the question, where will you get your protein? And we wanted to write a book that would lay this question to rest uh, sort of once and for all and tackle all of the other protein misconceptions uh, in our culture. So that's kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your dedication and your persistence and your attention to detail because we need all of that. So I'm very grateful for you, you as forging that path and doing the piece that some of us may not be able to. So I appreciate that. And I definitely appreciate this book because you're right. This is a question I get asked almost every single day and not even just because people want to eat a plant-based diet. It's a question for everybody. I'm a pediatrician. So parents are always yes. so stressed that their kids are not eating enough protein, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. It's like, but they Absolutely. don't even understand. <laughs> right. So they're so stressed about it, but then yet there's very little understanding about where protein is derived from, what it's used for, how much you need. So, so let's get into that. Why is there so much controversy around protein? It seems like even among the scientists, above the experts, it's 
hotly debated how much you need, how much you don't need. There's still experts out there saying that you have to consume animal products to yeah. get sufficient protein. So why is this such a big issue? Well, you know, partly it's because we don't have all the answers yet, and we're still trying to figure out how to assess the quality of protein uh, appropriately. And, you know, the big controversies really surround two key, key issues that revolve around how much protein we need and what are the best quality proteins. Um, so in terms of, you know, how much protein we need, we, we have to look at differences in different stages of the life cycle for athletes. And there's a lot of disagreement about also about what protein sources provide the highest quality protein. And as you, you can imagine, I think everyone knows protein is really big business. So there are a lot of stakeholders in this conversation. Determining optimal protein intakes at different life stages and for athletes actually has been pretty challenging and even you know the leading protein experts in the world don't always agree on you know what we need but we do have rdas for protein and and these rdas are are you know we have estimated average requirements which are fairly low but only cover probably half the population then the rdas are set to cover 97 to 98 percent of the population but some people still argue that the RDAs aren't high enough. And we know athletes need more than the RDAs. So the RDAs are 0.8 grams per kilogram for adults, or of course, more for, you know, 1.05 for, for toddlers and 0.95 for, for um, children, 0.85 for teens. But, but athletes need probably 1.2 to 2 grams uh, of protein per kilogram body weight but they eat a lot more. So it's actually pretty easy for them to achieve those numbers. Now, seniors, it's a whole other story because we're now seeing seniors, you know, they have a diminished ability to absorb uh, indispensable or essential amino acids. And, and so they, they probably need a little more than 0.8 grams per kilogram, maybe one to 1.2. And, and that's hard for seniors because they eat less. Adults, athletes eat a lot more. Seniors, eat less. And so for them to meet those needs on fewer calories, uh, is it can be challenging. Um, it's, it's also possible that some plant-based eaters need a little more if they eat a really high fiber diet, because the digestibility of protein from whole plant foods, if they're high in fiber, is a little bit lower. But where quality is concerned, at one time, the arguments were completely one-sided. The evidence for the superiority of animal protein seemed really solid based on the accepted measures of protein quality at the time. And the measures of protein quality we used, you know, when, when you think about the protein efficiency ratio, we used, you know, baby rats that are fur-bearing animals that need a lot of sulfur-containing amino acids. And humans, you know, we finally realized um, with newer measures of protein quality that, that humans aren't fur-bearing animals and, and that we probably probably underestimated the quality of plant protein using those old old measures but 
but what we what we know um, and what what I think is often forgotten in this conversation is that the different types of or the different protein sources have different impacts on our our morbidity and mortality, and and plant based proteins um, actually are consistently associated with better health outcomes, and so in in this quality question, you know whereas we've always judged quality based on amino acid profile, we're now starting to recognize that we need to expand the definition of protein quality and include other aspects of protein quality, like the impact it's going to have on, on our risk of, of death and disease. And also, I think we need to factor in the ecological burden of various protein sources as well. Uh, if we're going to really determine quality for humans, humans can't survive without a healthy planet. And and so we're not quite at the stage yet where, where we've done a really good job at weaving all of that in together to determine protein quality. But I think we're taking steps in that direction. And that's really important. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot, Brenda. You're just your brain is too full of information. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I want to take a step back and deviate a little bit from the next question I was going to ask because there's something I think that's fascinating about this whole history of our obsession with protein. So I think there probably was a time in our history in the world and in the United States where there was a significant amount of people that were not getting enough calories in general. They weren't getting enough access to to nutrients in general, right? And I know that this came up, especially when we were recruiting people to the military and everybody was just like starving to death and there wasn't enough people, you know, and so there was concern that we need to get people nutrients, specifically protein, that kind of thing. So yeah. now I feel like we've shifted the opposite direction, right? And there's not that many people that don't have enough access to calories. In fact, it's probably the opposite. And whenever you look at people's diets and how much they consume, even though I would say that the quality of the standard American diet is not as high as we'd like it to be as far as micronutrients and things like that, people are getting a significant amount of protein. And as you were saying before too, like when it comes to athletes and just your typical American eating the amount of food they want to eat to be satisfied, they're usually getting enough protein, even if it's just coming all from plants. But there was a time in our history where people weren't. And I remember learning in medical school, especially about certain um, micronutrient deficiencies. And there was this what you call the tea and toast, the little old woman who didn't have much of an appetite and was just basically just having her tea and toast three times a day. And, you know, you get the B12 deficiency and, and all of these things. But um, whenever you're referring to some of these populations, especially like seniors, is that still an issue in 2023 where people are under eating and getting not getting enough calories in general? Or it, like how much of it was was that issue just not getting enough calories in general versus we have to get extra protein? Yeah, so it it that that's a really important question, and I love that you brought that up because for so many years, hunger and malnutrition were really serious public health concerns, and and government policies were really directed towards the elimination of those uh, diseases and 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 the shortfalls. And nutrition education campaigns were really all about eat more messages, eat more protein, eat more calcium, eat you know all of those things, and and governments came up with sort of the meat and milk solution, you know, protein 
quality, you sort of favored animal protein, and we just thought that eating more animal foods would help to overcome all these micronutrient gaps and the protein gap and all of that. Um, but but what, what we fail to recognize is, is that all of the eat more messages uh, in the end kind of backfired because um, now the greatest malnutrition menace on the planet is overconsumption. And, you know, most people get twice the protein they need. It's, you know, there, there are a lot of faces of malnutrition, overconsumption is one of them, just like hunger or micronutrient deficiencies. So we need to recognize that, you know, we, you know, getting enough calories is not an issue for very many people in the developed world. We still have a lot of hunger in the world uh, and malnutrition in the world, but not, not, you know, in North America, for example. In North America, 70% of us will die of diet-induced chronic diseases that are really entirely preventable and so but but it's true dr yami that some seniors don't eat enough and for people that don't eat enough uh, uh, calories uh, protein is a bigger issue um, if if you're eating enough calories and you're you know you're you're eating a, a reasonable variety of plant foods uh, protein is is not generally um, a problem thank you so much for that because i think a lot of people don't realize that that's part of the issue too. It's just the yeah. general volume of the amount of food you consume. I have owned my pediatric practice, Nourish Wellness, for seven years now, which means that I've had a lot of learning experiences. I've definitely learned a lot about adopting technology that works and meets our needs. And I think that the single most important software for a practice is going to be their electronic health record and their practice management software. And it's something that's either going to make seeing patients easier, seamless, be something that contributes to your practice, or it's going to be a big giant headache and gonna cause a lot of frustration. So I am so grateful that I found TriMed for my practice. We implemented TriMed in January of 2023. It's going so well and I love it. So TriMed EHR offers a fully integrated suite of services, which includes their electronic health record, revenue cycle management, patient portal, patient check-in and telemedicine. They also have referral management and e-prescribing. But what I love about it the most is that it's so customizable. It's meant to serve practices of any size from small private practices with single providers to practices of over 350 providers. We love it because it also supports our goals of being a paperless practice. We don't wanna have to print and scan things all the time. And our patients can fill out, or you know, their families can fill out their forms ahead of time, things like the MCHAT, the PHQ-9, they can do that in the comfort of their own homes, or we can hand them an iPad when they get here and they can fill it out on the iPad. The patient portal is also very user-friendly and it's robust. Families can schedule their appointments for their children online and it runs on the cloud. So I don't have to waste space in my office hosting a server. We like to be minimalist about that as well and maximize our space. So that's really great. But 
What's really great is that their customer service is top notch. And that is so important for a piece of software that you're going to be using pretty much all the time that you're at the office seeing patients. It's really that important. So if you're looking to start your own practice, you're looking to change an ele your electronic health record, your software, check out TriMed. You can find them at TriMedTech, T-R-I-M-E-D-T-E-C-H.com. That will probably never be an issue for me because no, for me either. I love to eat, so <laughs> it'll be fine for me. Okay, so let's talk about this issue of complete versus incomplete protein. Um, what is that debate about? And is plant protein inferior or incomplete for humans compared to protein derived from animal flesh? Well, this is one of the issues that, that irks me as a, as a registered dietitian because, you know, it was way back in the early 80s, I think, that that a Diet for a New America, you know, we, we you know, that that uh, Francis Moore Lampe suggested that combining grains and beans would help to provide a, like a complete protein more similar to animal protein. And so people, you know, started getting really uh, careful, you know, calculating, making sure that they always ate, you know, certain foods together to get complete proteins. And, and in fact, you know, plant protein is not inferior. It's not incomplete uh, in the you know old sense of the word one of the things that i think few people actually realize is that animals don't make indispensable or essential amino acids they're they're actually made by plants we we get them from plants either directly by eating plants or indirectly by eating animals that eat plants or very indirectly by eating animals that eat other animals that eat plants. They come from plants. They're made by plants. It makes no sense to think we can't get them from plants. It's where they come from. <laughs> and, and so the idea that plant proteins are incomplete is really just about that in, in, indispensable amino acid profile in plant foods. So basically we look at the amount of each, you know, there are nine indispensable or essential amino acids in plant foods. And, and we have a recommended intake at different stages of life per gram of protein that we consume. I mean, if you need 30 grams of protein, then, then we would look at each of those 30 grams would need to have a certain amount of indispensable amino acids. And if we compare the numbers to estimates at various life stages, we find that some plants can fall short of certain uh, proteins. For example, greens tend to be low in lysine. Some legumes are a little bit low in methionine plus cysteine. Actually, a lot of them aren't, but some are. And this would be an issue for people if we ate only one food. <laughs> So, so I wanted, you know, I, I thought about this, um, I've thought about this for a long time, and I actually did some calculations to help people to understand this. So, for example, if you had a 136-pound adult who needs 50 grams of protein, 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight, and the only thing you eat is white rice, or this person is eating is white rice, they eat nothing else, they would need 11 cups of rice to get enough protein. 
However, to meet their needs for lysine as an adult at 38 milligrams per gram of protein or 1900 milligrams of lysine, they would actually have to eat 12 cups of rice. So they could still meet all of those needs, but they'd have to eat a little more rice. Now for a preschool child who actually needs more lysine, they need 58 milligrams per gram of protein. The difference is a little more. So they would require to get their 13 grams of protein that's recommended if they weigh 20 pounds. They would need to eat about four and three quarter cups of rice um, to get enough lysine. They would only need to eat three cups of rice to meet to get that 13 grams of protein. So they'd need an extra one and three quarter cups of rice to get all the lysine they need. But if we look at legumes, for example, we always say they're short of, you know, methionine and cysteine. You take the same 136 pound adult who, who needs 50 grams of protein um, and all they ate is black beans. They would have to eat three and a third cups of black beans to get enough protein. To meet their needs for methionine and cysteine, they'd only need 2.4 cups of black beans because actually black beans don't fall short at all on methionine and cysteine for adults. Um, so for adults, most legumes have sufficient of all essential amino acids. However, for a preschool child who weighs 20 pounds, needs 13 grams of protein, they would have to eat 0.85 cups of black beans. That's 13.5 tablespoons to get their 13 grams of protein. However, to meet their needs for methionine and cysteine, they'd actually have to eat 0.92 cups of black rice or 14.7 tablespoons. That means to get all the methionine and cysteine they need, they'd need to eat an extra 1.25 tablespoons of black beans. So it's this is tiny bit extra to, to meet their needs. And that's just eating a single food. So the point I'm trying to, to get at is, is truly, if you're eating a variety of foods, it's easy. Uh, you know, if you're eating a single food, it's pretty easy. But eating a variety of foods, you're getting a mix of all essential amino acids that plant foods produce. The key things are the variety of foods and meeting your caloric requirements. Those are, you know, keys. Animal proteins do contain all of the indispensable amino acids, but it doesn't make them a superior to plant protein sources because plant protein sources offer so many Ben, health benefits, the fiber, the phytochemicals, the antioxidants, all of these things, whereas animal products are high in saturated fat and cholesterol and, you know, new 5GC and produce TMEO and all of the things that have downsides where disease is concerned. So to me, it just makes so much more sense for, for people to be getting their protein from plants. That's beautifully said. And yes, we got to think about the package that the protein comes along in, right? Like it's not just the protein itself, but what else comes with that protein that might be producing that higher burden of morbidity, mortality. What are some other advantages to consuming plant protein over animal protein? I mean, you've said so many, but if you were to kind of summarize it for us so that people really see the difference of like, okay, maybe I should be choosing more plant protein sources versus animal protein sources, what would you say to them? Well, I, I would say there, there are so many studies that have looked at 
you know, risk of, of mortality and morbidity, different diseases. And there was a study in 2020 from the United States that reported a 10% reduction in mortality when just 3% of calories from animal protein were replaced with plant protein. And just to put this into perspective, because people have no idea what those numbers probably mean, but it means in a 2000 calorie diet or kind of a typical diet, it's 60 calories. It's about one ounce of meat or less than an egg. An egg is 70 or 80 calories. So one ounce of meat or, or a small egg, you know, if you replaced that with plant protein, you would reduce your risk of death by 10%. Now imagine if you replace three ounces of meat um, with plant protein, uh, you would be tripling that, you would be reducing mortality by 30%. So based on this study and many other studies that would, you know, that show similar results. And this particular study actually quantified impacts of various uh, foods. And when red meat was replaced with plant protein, risk dropped 13% for men and 15% for women. And we're talking still 3%, you know, 3% of calories. Um, when dairy products were replaced. It was an 8% decrease in mortality. When eggs were replaced with plant protein, risk dropped 24% for men and 21% for women. So triple that if you're eating three eggs, that would be, you know, it would be close to 75% for men. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot. So if you, if you do the math on this, replacing one large egg, two ounces of meat and a cup of milk could reduce risk of mortality by about 54%. That's pretty impressive. And we got even more stunning stats out of Japan in 2019. Mortality dropped 34% when 3% of calories from red meat were replaced with plant protein of 46% when 3% of calories from processed meat were replaced with, with plant protein. Again, that's just 60 calories from these foods. And for most chronic diseases, including cardiovascular, disease, type 2 diabetes, and cancer, the findings are really similar. And I just want to give you a couple of examples. There was a study in 2020 in the U.S. that reported heart failure risk was 251 percent, two and a half times greater in the highest versus lowest quintile of animal protein intake, and 56 percent lower in the highest versus lowest intake of legumes. And then for type 2 diabetes, there was a 2017 study out of Finland that reported type 2 diabetes risk dropped 18% when just 1% of calories from animal protein, 1%, that's 20 calories, were replaced with plant protein. And then there was another study um, on cancer from Japan that reported a 39% drop in cancer mortality when 3% of calories from red meat were replaced with plant protein, and a 50% drop in cancer mortality when 3% of calories from processed meat were replaced with plant protein. And of course, in the book, we have, you know, many other studies listed, but just to give you a flavor of the kinds of results we're seeing, this is really pretty impressive.
Wow, that's incredibly dramatic. And I think that goes a long way in showing people that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Even if they can just get started in including more plants in their diet, that could make a huge difference for, the, for them as far as their long-term health and longevity and all of that, which is something that I'm a big advocate for and very passionate about. So that's very, very powerful. I, I love that. It's not all or nothing. One step at a time, whatever you do that, you know, improves your diet or moves you more towards, um, you know, plants in that direction uh, will will provide uh, incredible benefits. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, let's talk a little bit about amounts. You've kind of mentioned before the amount as far as like grams per kilogram, but yeah. The typical non-athlete human, which is probably the typical adult American, right? The majority of us. Yeah. How much do we need to consume if we're eating an exclusively plant-based diet for our normal day-to-day -day function? We're healthy adults, you know, no chronic disease of any kind. And then beyond that, how do you determine what's sufficient for a person individually? So if you could just give us a ballpark of how much food is that? What kind of foods would that be to make sure that we're getting enough? Yeah, so so generally our recommendations in plant-powered protein uh, is to, to aim, if you're plant-based, to aim for the RDA plus 10% to compensate for reduced digestibility of protein from whole plant foods. And plant foods, because they contain fiber that can carry out a little bit of the protein in foods. So adding 10% brings us up to that 0.9 grams per kilogram body weight. So, but if you consume a lot of lower fiber protein rich foods like tofu and soy milk and peanut butter and, you know, some veggie meats, you probably don't have to do that 10% uh, increased adjustment. Um, so in terms of total protein, so, so generally the RDA, when they talk about the RDA for a man, the RDA for a woman, they use a 126 pound woman and 154 pound man. And the RDA would be 46 grams for a woman and, and, and uh, 56 for a man. If you add that 10%, it would be 50 grams for a woman and 62 for a man. Now, what you need to, to, uh, realize and a lot of people don't is that the rda is based on a healthy body weight so if someone is 30 pounds overweight for example that excess weight that they're carrying is not included to calculate protein requirements so let's say the woman weighs 156 pounds but her ideal weight is 126 we we calculate her protein needs based on the 126 pounds so that's important so so how do you get you know you know 50 grams of protein for a woman 62 for a man it's it's actually not very difficult because first of all we need probably 10 to 15 percent of calories from protein 
almost everything that we consume contains at least that amount. So for example, um, you know, it's, it's just really interesting when you're looking at uh, the, the amount of protein in various food groups. So for example, in, in um, uh, uh, legumes, for example, you're getting about 20 to 40% of calories from protein. In uh, uh, in in um, uh, grains, uh, you're getting about ten, you know, you know, somewhere between seven and seventeen, but usually ten to twelve at least. Um, Non-starchy vegetables, uh, ten to forty percent of calories from protein. Um, the seeds are about eleven to twenty-four or twenty-five percent of calories from protein. Um, you know, veggie meats are 30 to 65 or 70% of calories from protein. Uh, soybeans, tofu, tempeh are around 35 to 45. Uh, nuts and seeds, somewhere 8 to 14. The only foods that, that fall at all below that 10% number are fruits and some starchy vegetables. Most starchy vegetables are around the 10%. But it, it you know, when you think of that, the foods that are super low in protein are sugar, so added sugars and fats like oils don't have any protein. So if you're eating a variety of plant foods with, you know, knowing all of those numbers and you're getting enough calories, you're going to be somewhere around 12 to 15 percent of calories from protein for most people. So you're you're really bang on that you run into problems when you eat mostly sugar and fat. Uh, when you know, so you're eating a junk food diet, um, and when you're not getting enough calories. So someone who has anorexia nervosa, or who is sick and can't eat enough, or a tea and toast senior, uh, those kind of fruitarians may not get enough uh, protein. Uh, so there, there are some exceptions, but generally, if you eat enough food. You eat, you know, a variety of foods, you're getting enough calories, you're getting enough protein and indispensable amino acids. Very well. Thank you so much for explaining that. And so that brings me to a question. I feel like this is going around social media so much right now. So I'd love to hear your opinion on this. So <laughs> we talked about how a long time ago, there's a lot of people that are malnourished and get enough calories. Now it's like the opposite. So there's a lot of people that are constantly dieting, right? So there's a lot of people trying mm -hmm. to cut their calories and, and be on a calorie deficit. And what I have seen going around social media are plant-based coaches saying, if you're on a calorie deficit, you must have protein supplementation, either in protein powders or some sort of, you know, TVP or some sort of, um, you know, more condensed protein sources, because if you're on a calorie deficit, you need even a greater percentage of protein. So what is your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, and is that accurate or not? Well, I, I would say that it's, you know, it's a, a little bit of both. <laughs> So definitely you still need the same amount of protein, maybe even a little more if you're trying to conserve your muscle mass, right? When you're, when you're losing weight, you're in a caloric deficit, you want to retain muscle mass. And so you want to get at least the amount of protein you need. So I would say shooting for a gram of protein per kilogram body weight is, is really quite reasonable. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? 
join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. Now, now that having been said, if you're that, um, you know, um, uh, you're you're a, a 126 pound woman who needs 50 grams of protein, um, you you might need 55 grams of protein or something like that, but you're eating fewer calories, so you, you don't need to necessarily add protein powders or anything like that. But I would say you do need to be a little more conscious of including protein rich choices at your meals. So you might want to be having soy milk instead of almond milk with your breakfast. You might want to be having lentil soup instead of vegetable soup at lunch. You might want to be having, you know, extra tofu with your stir fry at supper or something like that. Um, You just want to make sure you've got protein with each of you know each of the meals that you are eating if you're making smoothies and you're replacing any a lot of people on weight loss diets will replace a meal with a smoothie or even two Um, if you're doing that you want to make sure that you're adding things like hemp seeds and um, soy milk and and even frozen peas Uh, you can do it with whole foods uh, no question Um, but you want to be adding some of those protein choices into that smoothie and not just having, you know, sort of a water, fruit and green smoothie. You want to get some protein in there. Okay, great. That cleared up a lot of the question I had, which is it can be done with whole foods. I just feel like everybody's, I'm just taking it personally. I'll just be honest, Brenda, because beans are amazing. And I feel like beans are being demonized because everybody's like, beans are not enough. You must have protein powders or these things to get enough protein. And I I don't necessarily agree with that, but also because I no, love beans. Beans are amazing. Yeah. So okay. beans are amazing, and and they're they're not only are they great sources of protein, but they're great sources of iron and zinc and many other micronutrients. But they're also a primary sources of the kind of fiber that you know the fermentable viscous fiber that our microbi you know our microbes in our gut. Um, like to use for food. And so they help to support a healthier gut. Uh, protein powders don't do that. <laughs> you know, they just don't, they don't have those things. And so I think it's, it's um, you know, far better to rely on whole foods than protein powders. And there's, you know, the issue with protein powder is also a lot of protein powders are, are not contaminant free. Some have been found to have, you know, certain quantities of heavy metals and can, you know, just be have things added that are not so desirable for health. Um, there are, I, you know, admittedly some very good companies that produce a 
cleaner, uh, purer products. Um, but, uh, you know, most people don't need that. Um, I've never used a protein powder in my life. I think they taste, I've tasted them at these shows. I think they taste horrible. Um, but I know that for some people, for some athletes, for some seniors, um, it may, they, they may have a place. And so I wouldn't say never, ever consume them. Nobody should use them. But I would say most people don't need them. Yeah. The typical person. So that's what brings me to my next question is now we have our athletes, uh, people at different life stages, like you said, seniors, uh, things like that. So can we talk a little bit about, first of all, the athlete? How do we determine how much protein is needed for an athlete? And there's so many different kinds of athletes too, which I think is important. You know, we have our uh, endurance athletes that are running marathons and ultra marathons. And then we also have our people that are doing powerlifting and bodybuilding, which is something that I am getting into right now is the powerlifting. It's super fun. But how does a person that wants to engage in those kinds of activities determine how much protein is ideal for them? It's really important to recognize that unless you're a serious competitive athlete, your protein needs do not increase by much. Uh, even if you're doing, you know, weights two or three times a week and getting more serious into trying to build muscle, you, you may need a gram of protein per kilogram body weight, but you don't need what a competitive athlete needs. So a competitive athlete, you're looking at somewhere between 1.2 and 2 grams um, per kilogram body weight. And, and, you know, most of these athletes are consuming so much food that it's just not an issue for them to reach those numbers. Um, of course, muscle building athletes need more, they need a little more branch chain amino acids. And so they, you know, their, their diets need to be designed so that they're getting really good protein at each meal and perhaps, some, you know, a smoothie during the day that that's um, fortified with the, you know, either with hemp seeds and, and, you know, frozen peas and soy milk and things like that. Or if they want to use a bit of protein powder that's higher in branch chain amino acids, that's another option. Um, but endurance athletes probably don't need a lot of extra branch chain amino acids. They, they you know, need a, a certain amount, but, but probably not quite as much as a, as a, um, you know, resistant uh, trained athlete. Uh, but generally for the average show, like you or I, that's, you know, trying to stay fit and I exercise an hour, sometimes two a day. Um, and I do do some weights and I'd like to keep my, my muscles strong. I'm probably, you know, good at a gram per kilogram body weight. Uh, it's the serious athletes that need more. And, and so, you know, I think that's, that's the bottom line is that, is that we don't need to be doubling our protein intakes. Like so many people, and most people get double what, you know, there was a study um, looking at um, protein intakes in similar health conscious individuals eating different dietary patterns in the United States. And, and, and the vegetarian, the vegans were, I think at 71 grams per, per day, the, the vegetarians at 73 and the, and, and the omnivores at 75. Um, and we were all, you know, probably one and a half times what, what we need. Uh, it was the same in, there was a study in Germany called the veggie study, looking at intakes in toddlers and, and they were all getting 
over double uh, the RDA. Uh, and so we tend to get significantly more protein than, than what we need. So for most people, an increase, even with increased activity, um, you know, their, their bases are covered anyway. Um, but for athletes, it's a little bit of a different story and they need, do need to make sure that they're within, because not all athletes are eating 4,000 calories a day or even 3,000 calories a day. Some athletes trying to, you know, stay super lean are eating fewer calories. And for those athletes, they're definitely going to need to, to make sure they have good good sources of protein at every meal and during and with their snacks as well. That's good information. And for people that might be falling short on their protein requirements, what kind of symptoms are they experiencing, especially for like athletes? Is it that they're getting fatigued, you're not recovering? What 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 are they going to be feeling? All, all of the above. So, so, but the biggest thing is, is they're not going to be able to retain their, their muscle mass as, as well. But they, you know, we, we see those kinds of things like that, you know, fatigue and, and, um, and just a, a failure to recover as efficiently, lactic acid buildup that that doesn't go as efficiently, things like that we see. Um, what I see more, I, I don't see a lot of that with athletes because they're so focused on protein, they don't usually fall short. But where I'm seeing people fall short is seniors. And and so I've, I've looked at a number of uh, seniors who complain about um, you know, the, the sarcopenia, their their muscle wasting, their their bone density is is um you know not good. Their 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 skin feels like it's you know get gets so thin and easily injured and doesn't recover well. Their hair is falling out. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things um going on. And when I look at their diet and calculate their protein intake. Sometimes they're eating 30 or 40 grams a day and um, it's not enough. It's just, they're not eating enough. Um, and, and sometimes they're eating enough calories, but, but they, you know, they're not, they're not eating enough. They don't, they don't want to eat beans because they cause gas or the, you know, things like that. And, and so that can be a real challenge to get the protein they need in there. And in some cases, and, and I know there are some people that won't like this, but in some cases it could make good sense for them to add a bit of veggie meat um, because it's super digestible, high quality protein, and they like it. it it's familiar. It's, you know, it's just uh, easy for them to eat. And and that can boost their protein in a half of a rush. In one, you know, veggie sausage, um, there could be 25 grams of protein and that could get them to where they need to go pretty quick. I think that makes sense for a lot of people too, because for some people, when they're getting to those older, you know, later stages in life, um, as things are changing in your body, your appetite goes down. And so for some of these, sure. you know, more processed foods that, palatability might also increase Can that really urge help. to eat a little bit more. So we have to be mindful of individual differences and differences in life stages and what makes sense. You know, I don't think we need to just put these uh, different foods in categories and be like, this is bad. You should never eat it. I think it definitely has its place sure. and we have to be mindful of that. 
Absolutely. And the other thing I want to say, um, Dr. Yami, is, is just for some people being able to just take that out of the freezer and prepare it so easily, it just it, it just makes life easier for them. And so, you know, sure, have some pea soup, have some lentil soup. If you're having a hard time with digesting beans, have more pure, pureed um like hummus and, and these, you know, these kinds of foods. The one thing we do need to be conscious of is for some people who are very sodium sensitive, these foods are higher in sodium. So we do have to take that into consideration. What about satiety? It, you know, it goes around all the time. You need to eat more protein for satiety, more protein for satiety. I guess this kind of goes back a little bit to the people that are trying to be on a calorie deficit. But is that really true? There, there definitely is research showing that protein helps with satiety. Um, but that having been said, it doesn't mean you have to be excessive in your intake of protein. Humans have a requirement for protein. It's super important. So we're hardwired to seek out protein in our foods. And so, um, so you know, definitely it helps with satiety, but it's, it's you know, it, it doesn't justify eating double what you need. Um, I think it just means that with our meals, we don't want our meals to just be fat and carbohydrate. We want our meals to be, you know, have all three macronutrients in a reasonable proportion. Um, the, the macronutrient we need in the smallest proportion is probably protein at about 10 to 15%. Um, you know, we're, we're looking for a lot more carbohydrate. That's our primary energy source. And for fat, well, it depends on your health status. But I would say, you know, for children, you want a little bit more. So you're looking at 30% or so. And for young children, even a little bit more than that. For adults, you know, I I, I like to aim for around 20% uh, from mainly whole foods, because it, that gives us enough to allow for maximizing absorption of fat-soluble nutrients and phytochemicals. And uh, when you get much below 15%, you can compromise the absorption of those nutrients. However, that having been said, for people with coronary heart disease, we have really good research suggesting those very low intakes of fat may help to reverse you know, atherosclerosis. So they, there's an application there. All right, great information. And then as far as intake do people need to track their protein intake or I mean, it seems to me like you're gonna say no maybe there are certain populations <laughs> like athletes or seniors that are struggling with getting enough but for everybody else what's a simple way to determine if your intake is sufficient yeah so people absolutely do not need to track protein intake we need to focus more on food than on specific nutrients and just by by eating a variety of whole foods, having a mix of foods, eating regular meals, you know, we're, we're managing. So what we need to focus on is, is, you know, including a decent source of protein with our meals. So for example, if you're eating cold cereal or oatmeal or something like that at breakfast with a banana on top or a few berries. Um, if you have that with almond milk and that's it, you, you might get five or six grams of protein in that meal. 
you could you know easily up that to 20 grams of protein by choosing soy milk over almond milk by what i do is i cook lentils in with my my grains um so by adding a little lentils in there by sprinkling i always have a seed mix i sprinkle on top with hemp seeds and chia seeds and 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 you know i do a, a pretty high protein dehydrated granola that has a lot of seeds in it and a little of that on top and my breakfast bowl is easily 20, 25 grams of protein. So we're eating, you know, both of us are eating a, a bowl of cereal, if you will. Um, but there's a 20 gram difference in protein content just because of what, in your, what you're eating with it. And and so it's the same at lunch. I mean, you could eat a salad, um, you know, with a, with a, some sort of, you know, no, uh, uh, dressing and some croutons and, and be getting almost, you know, maybe seven or eight grams of protein at most but but if you add some beans and you add some quinoa and you add a you know i always make my dressings with tahini and hemp seeds and you know with these high nutrient you know dense foods um my salad easily has 25 grams of protein um so it's those kinds of things you can have pasta and marinara sauce uh for dinner and be getting you know seven or eight grams of protein in the meal um, but if you add um, or you switch your pasta to, um, you know, black bean pasta or edamame pasta or something like that, you instantly add 20 grams of protein to that meal. There's so many ways of ensuring that you've got a decent source of protein at each meal um, that I think that's that's sufficient. If you've got those bases covered, um, that's sufficient. And as you said, there may be some athletes that are, you know, very elite athletes who are really trying to fine tune their game that may want to do some calculations. Uh, there are some seniors that I like to calculate their protein intake because often they can fall short. Um, but generally, if you're doing that and you're including, you know, you're, you're, you're making those kinds of choices at each meal, um, your bases are covered. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And I'm definitely going to go to your house to eat a meal because it sounds amazing. I'll, oh, I'll know I I'll, I'm getting that. sufficient <laughs> protein at your house. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, Brenda, what do you wish more people knew? Well, I, I, I guess I wish people knew that humans don't need to eat animals to get enough protein. Relying on animals to meet human protein needs is not only unnecessary, but it's associated with an increased risk of death and disease. Animal agriculture is our, you know, one of the biggest contributors to, to climate change and environmental degradation. And I think it's important for people to know that it causes tremendous suffering for billions of animals who are raised and slaughtered for food every year. It's, you know, estimated 70 to 80 billion animals a year. It's just unbelievable. Plants provide plenty of protein for people and protein rich plant foods provide a more healthful, more ecologically sustainable and a kinder way of providing protein to a very rapidly rising human population. Yeah, so beautiful. Do you have a morning routine? And if so, can you share it with us? 
Well, I do, and it kind of changes depending on what's happening. But my preferred routine is um, to do about an hour of exercise, um, and then I do a few chores and have my breakfast, and then I get to work. And some days I do admit I do chores and have breakfast first because I go to classes at the gym. I go to yoga classes and hit classes and boxing classes and step classes and those kinds of things, which I really quite enjoy. I also like to get outside every day. And, and so either for a walk or a run or a ski or something. Um, and so sometimes that'll be the first thing I do in the day and in the, in the summertime, uh, that's much more frequent than when it's minus 30. Uh, but, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I just uh, really try to have a balance in my life to, I, you know, getting exercise in every day is critical for me. I, I think of it as I think of eating or sleeping. Um, I always make sure I get enough sleep, eight, seven or eight hours at least. And, you know, they're on average and, you know, I get fitness in and I eat a healthy diet and, and I have a lots of joy with my family. I, you know, I have three grandchildren that live a couple blocks away. I have, you know, my husband and my mom lives close by. And so doing things with the family and just having that balance in life, I think is really important too. Uh, you have the perfect recipe for longevity right there. You're, you're living <laughs> it. You're living the Blue Zones lifestyle. Love it. <laughs> well, Brenda, tell us where listeners can connect with you and where they can find your latest book. Right. So they can connect with me on my website, brendadavisrd.com. Uh, email me at brendadavis at telus.net. I'm not I'm not terribly active on social media. Actually, I'd like to have someone help me with that because I think it's my generation or something. But I do post on Facebook and people can connect with me via LinkedIn as well. Um, and, um, you know, I do the odd consults, but I, I have to be honest, I focus more on writing and speaking and creating courses for health professionals and the public. And so I don't do as much consulting as I used to. Um, and uh, the, the book is a available on Amazon. It was published by the book publishing company, but it's, it's available at, at major bookstores as well. Awesome. Yeah. And I think it's very important for people to read this, especially for those that are particularly concerned about protein, read the book for sure. Okay. <laughs> last you. question, Brenda, leave us with your top three ways to ensure that we are consuming sufficient plant protein. Okay, so this is actually a really nice summary of what we just talked about. So I would say, number one, ensure that you've got some sort of protein-rich choice at each meal. And, and when I say a protein-rich choice, I mean beans or lentils, split peas, uh, tofu, tempeh, edamame, uh, you know, even, you know, veggie meats can be thrown in the mix once in a while, seitan if you're not sensitive to gluten. Protein-rich seeds like hemp seeds and pumpkin seeds are all good. Uh, nuts are, are um, uh, also a source, but they're not quite as concentrated. Uh, and it's interesting, grains provide the world with about half the protein um, that is available. And so some grains are actually surprisingly good sources of protein, like camut and spelt berries provide, you know, about 12 grams per cup, I believe. So 11 to 13, I would say on average, but, but so there, and you know, quinoa is a reasonable source. So some of those foods certainly contribute as well. Um, and then the other thing to do is to, especially for children and seniors, 
include some lower fiber choices in the mix. So it means things like tofu, soy milk, peanut butter, seitan, uh, you know, the occasional veggie meats, which are very low in fiber generally. Um, in the mix means that, you know, you're adding that very digestible uh, protein uh, to the diet. And then number three, I would say, you know, get a little bit familiar with the amount of protein in different foods and compare options within categories, at least some of the time. And I think one of the most important examples, especially for children, is um, the non-dairy milks. So there are some non-dairy milks that have almost no protein, like rice milk, almond milk might have a gram per cup, whereas other milks like soy, pea, and some of the fortified protein fortified milks may have, you know, somewhere six to 10 grams per cup. And if a person is consuming two cups of non-dairy milk a day, uh, having a protein-rich milk, well, you just think about a child, if they're consuming two cups of milk with eight grams of protein, um, you know, per cup, they've actually met their protein requirements. If they're a toddler, that needs 13 grams of protein a day just from the milk alone. So it can make quite a difference. And for seniors as well, it's just makes so much sense to be choosing a, one of the milks that's a little bit higher in protein. And then even with grains, when you compare grains, if you look at, um, you know, wheat, kemet, spelt, amaranth, quinoa, um, they're significantly higher in protein than rice, barley, millet. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's great. Barley has the lowest GI of all grains. It's a wonderful grain to use. It's very high in soluble fiber. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful grain to use um, but it's much lower protein so you want to mix it up you don't want to rely on one grain all the time there are a lot of cultures that are very rice based and to mix up the grains can actually improve the quality of protein in the diet you can also choose some of the higher protein nuts or seeds like almonds are higher in protein than pecans for example and hemp seeds and pumpkin seeds are you know sort of at the upper end in the seed category so those are just a few of the, you know, sort of practical tips if you need to boost your protein, which most people probably already get enough. So they don't have to worry too much. I love it. Those are wonderful tips. And I think that variety is important for so many different things, not just protein, but also for the different fibers that we're consuming, the different micronutrients, vitamins, everything. So it's probably good to every once in a while, just be mindful. Hey, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. I'm going to change the type of grain I'm using for a little bit because we do get into our familiar, comfortable ones, right? I just got back from a trip from Panama, I'm Panamanian, and my husband is definitely not Panamanian. He's from Texas. <laughs> and so every meal we have, it's like literally corn cooked in a different way. Cause corn is like our number one staple. And he's like, how many different ways can you cook corn? I'm like, believe me, this is just scratching the surface of all the different <laughs> ways we make corn in Panama, but it is important to, to mix it up so that you can get exposure to different percentages of protein, different fibers, different, you know, micronutrients. So great, great. Yes, tip. absolutely. And, and, you know, when I cook grains for breakfast, for example, I have two mixes. I do one with oat roots, quinoa and small lentils. And then I do another one with um, uh, cabbage berries, uh, barley 
and and the bigger lentils. And that one I make more of a, you know, so that it can be sprinkled on a salad. It can be used in a in a bowl, a, you know, a dinner bowl or a breakfast bowl for that matter. And the other one I make creamier. So I've got maybe some diced prunes in it and some seasonings like cinnamon and nutmeg and so forth. And And so, you know, just in that mix, I've got quite a few different grains and I do, you know, vary it from time to time, even above and beyond that. So. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all the work that you've done. And thank you for continuing to dedicate yourself to providing us this information and educating us and reassuring us that this is a good path for those of us that have decided to align our values, our lifestyles with eating plants. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for all that you do. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Oh, well, I appreciate you so much as well and, and your your balance and, and uh, sensibilities and, and I'm so grateful for what you're doing. And for me, it's just been such a privilege to be in this space for so many years and to see the changes over the years. It's just unbelievable. I would have never believed 30 years ago we'd be where we are today and have so many um, physicians and dietitians on board. Uh, it's really reassuring reassuring and other health professionals as well. It's really reassuring and it's very exciting uh, to be here uh, at this time and place. So I'm very grateful. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.